What's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is Joe Bonamassa here, and this is another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my special guest is blues icon, my hero, your hero, we all love him, the legendary Order of the British Empire, the great John Mayall. Thank you very much for doing this. It's such an honor. I'm such a fan, and I'm so honored to call you my friend. Well, that's amazing. That's a mar marvelous intro. You know, you, <laughs> makes me seem really famous. <laughs> you are famous. You're, you're, you're well, an icon. Well, I've been around for a bit, you know, so we love the blues and the love, the love playing for people. So that will continue. You know, that's the one thing I always, I always tell people about you. It's like, you know, after all these years, so many records and, and, and you know, decades, you know, playing live, you've not lost the youthful enthusiasm for the music. You know what I mean? You, you go out there and you give it your all every night, and you've done it since the 60s. Well, you know, the whole, whole thing about uh, playing the blues is, uh, you know, it's got so much uh, avenues to go in. And, you know, I enjoy playing every night. It's a different show every night. And, uh, you know, I have great musicians to play with. And, uh, you know, it's, it will long may it continue. So, um, yeah. It's, it's it's wonderful that we have an audience that that sticks by it, you know, with all the the bumps and grinds or whatever of being on the road. But you know, I love what I do. Always have done. You know, um, I you know, speaking with uh, Walter Trout, he was on oh, the yeah. show, and um, he tours in the classic John Mayall fashion. If you're on the road for 25 days, be prepared to do 25 shows straight, yeah. not a day off. I mean, and you still do that. I mean, I mean, how do you how do you find the stamina to to do twenty five gigs in a row? I mean, it's that's incredible. Well, you know, we've been doing it for so many years. It's um, it's quite easy for me. And the, the hardest thing is if you have days off. I mean, not necessarily hard, but uh, you know, you're kind of wondering what happened. You know, they're just waiting for the next one. But you know, we like to work every night of the of the week on the tour. And and, uh, you know, I mean, the consistency and everything, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I'm not sure if you realize how much your music over the years has has touched people of my generation, the younger, younger people, younger than me, people older than me. I mean, you you wrote the playbook and you basically introduced us to the blues. And and for that, I, I can just collectively say for all of us, thank you for that. Well, it's, it's great that people have uh followed me after all these years, you know, and there's so many albums to document it also. So I'm very lucky in that respect. But I've always, always loved, you know, it, improvising and, and playing a different thing every night and keep the musicians on their toes, all the best musicians that I've worked with over the years. So we, we like to have fun and uh, we'll continue to do that. If you were to describe yourself, um, if you were to say, you know, my name is John Mayall, would you describe yourself as a keyboardist, a harmonica player, a singer, or a guitar player, or all D all of the above? It, it's all the above, really. It depends on the nature of the song. Um, I mean, the words are very important, but so is the uh, instrument that you choose to to play to support it. You know, so my main instrument has always been the keyboards, uh, and then the secondary to that would be you know harmonica, which is a lead instrument, and also. Uh, the guitar, to a certain extent, is 
uh, is, is kind of minimal in my respect. <laughs> this is sitting talking to you, with, you know, you're a, a guitar whiz, you know, but uh, mine is much more uh, towards the, the John Lee Hooker style of simplicity, you know. I don't think it'll be any better than that. But, you know, I love what I do and uh, I express myself through the music and it's great that we have an audience for it. So, you know, um, your father was a guitar player, a jazz guitar player, and you, you kind of grew up in a musical house. I mean, um, was he the first person to like, on, hey, check these records out and, 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 you know, basically be the host for your, you know, you, the, this, this music that you would make, you know, for the rest of your life? I mean, when, when did you first start noticing music in a passionate way? Um, I, I don't know. It's really hard to tell because, you know, I grew up in a house where, you know, music was being played. Um, it was mainly his record collection that was uh, the starting point for me. So, you know, I've I, I gravitated towards the guitar players, Eddie Lang and Lonnie Johnson, I think were probably the first ones that, uh, that I came across. But, uh, you know, he had a collection that, uh, that did have a, quite a lot of guitar players in it. And I think that's where I kind of, uh, you know, got, got interested in jazz and blues. So, you know, uh, I took up piano when I was at art school and, uh, you know, it's rather, 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 um, I was, was say rather amateurish, you know, but, but I love what I'm doing. And I think keyboard is always my main instrument and the guitar would be the secondary one. And then harmonica, of course, is just a solo instrument. But uh, I, love, I love, you know, expressing myself through whatever instrument. What age did you pick it up? Like uh, the first time you actually you sat at a piano or plucked on a guitar, what, approximately what age? I, I think it was probably guitar because there were guitars around the house and, uh, you know, we didn't have a piano. So I used to torture other people at art school, you know, by uh, sitting down and playing, playing the best I could with a bit of boogie woogie. But, um, you know, I think harmonica came much later in the game, you know, when I started to uh, explore that instrument. Um, but keyboard has always been my main instrument. What, um, how hard it, was it to get like blues records in the, in the, the late 40s and 50s to listen to? I mean, in, in, in England, because, you know, the, the, the problem with the, here in the United States is everything was hiding in plain sight, but nobody noticed it. You guys... Yeah first to notice it but you were also thousands of miles away how hard was it to to find these records like you know lead belly or pine top smith or you know you know lonnie johnson were, were they readily available or was it you have to seek them out or order them from the states um no they were they were they were available it depends what you were what who you were after you know but mm. you know i started my record collection you know with like with english releases i suppose and there were, you know, a lot more uh, American blues artists uh, that were, you know, on, on 78s than you might uh, expect. So, you know, uh, I think it, they were harder to get. So I used to send off for American releases when I could get that together. But um, I don't know. It's just a, a long process, really, of pursuing the, the music that you love. When you started a band... Um, your first band, the, the Blue Syndicate, the Powerhouse, and you met a guy named Alexis Corner, who 
you know, not a lot of people here in America know that that you know he was one of the founding fathers of British blues, and 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 Alexis uh, convinced you to 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 move to London and 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 give it a go, you know, as a career. I mean, how hard was that to to take that leap? It wasn't all that hard for me because you know I had a day job in advertising and commercial art, so that was my career. But, uh, you know, I was able to do both jobs for the first year. You know, I, I wanted to, to make sure that it was going to be a going concern. So, you know, after a year, there was enough work coming in on the musical end that I could, you know, actually start, start making a, make a full-time job out of it, you know. So um, um, it was a slow process, but, you know, I was just very glad that we, there was an audience out there who were supporting what I was doing. So, uh you know, you name it, <laughs> it was good. What What was the audience like early on, like pre-Blues Breaker? You know, were you playing like, you know, uh, upbeat dance tunes and you just, the, the the whole point of the gig was just to keep the kids dancing? Like, what, or, or were these serious connoisseurs of they wanted to hear the the real blues? Well, it was just the blues, right? The, right from the very beginning, as far as I was concerned. Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis uh, kicked off the whole uh, R&B thing as, a, as opposed to trad jazz that had been ruling the, the clubs and everything for 10 years or so. Uh, but there was a new generation who wanted something new and uh, Alexis and Cyril uh, you know, put their band together and that led to uh, all the English bands that came up afterwards. So, you know, I was all part of that uh, flood of new talent. Was this like the, uh, the late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, early 60s. Yeah, all that happened, you know, but it, it happened very quickly because up to that point, 10 years uh, of uh, trad jazz has been ruling all the clubs. And um, when Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis got together and they put this R&B stuff together, you know, um, it, the young generation were very quick to discover it and, and support it, you know. So um, there was plenty of work uh, right from that point onwards. Do you ever, do you ever like look back and think when you first started the Blues Breakers in 1962 that literally only 60 years later there would still be a John Mayall on the Blues Breakers? Talk about talk about you know you're 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 a year and a half away from the the, the band turning 60 years old. I mean, talk about longevity. You know, it's the, it's a testament to your talent, testament to the music and your your passion. Did you ever think it would last that long? Well, I don't think you think in those sort of terms. You know, you think on in in terms of getting enough work to coming in on a daily basis um, to support a band and and to have enough work. So for the first year, I did. Uh, you know, I kept my day job in uh, advertising, and in the evenings I did the the blues stuff. And so, you know, it just uh, you know came a point where there was enough musical uh, activity going on that I could drop the day job and uh, go into music full time. But that's what it was all about. You know, there was Alexis Corder and Cyril Davis sparked that whole thing off. And uh, it was it very quickly mushroomed from that that all sorts of people came up. And, uh, you know, it was uh, a, new, a new thing that people were into. Tell me what it was like in, uh, in England after the war. How long did it take for society to start getting back to normal life? 
because you know it it you know from the people I've spoken to and what I've read it it took a minute and life was hard you know after after World War II and 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 into the 50s and even the early 60s it took it took a while I suppose it did you know I mean I was I was you know gainfully employed you might say in advertising so you know I always had my day job uh, before I turned into the music music was something that I'd always done as a hobby so it was like uh, when Alexis uh, and Cyril Davis kicked the whole thing off it was here there was a new uh, a new market you know for for something that was something I'd been playing for years so you know it was very very special time really that uh, when the British blues uh, enterprise you know kicked off and it really happened happened very quickly you know the first lineup um, was Peter Ward, John McBean, Bernie Watson, and yourself. That was the that was the first inclination of the Blues Breakers. And you were working, and and then you meet a guy. You know, I'm going to ask you. Then you meet a guy named Eric Clapton. Did you know right away that that this this guy or this kid at that point um, was like special? Absolutely. You know, Eric was one of the one of the very few people who had a, a, a marked interest in the blues and really it showed in his playing. So, you know, I heard him first when he was playing with the Yardbirds and, uh, and uh, I thought that he was by far the standout musician. So, you know, when I got the opportunity to offer him a job, I mean, I'd already be, uh, been established enough on the scene that I was able to pay him for the usual uh, 20 pounds a week uh, that, it, that it cost. That's what, yeah, that was the that was the thing. Everybody got twenty quid a week, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous by the, today's standard. But uh, you know, that's what everybody was paid for the first couple of years. How many gigs a week were you doing for twenty pounds? More, more than seven, because <laughs> you, know, you know when it came to the weekends, it was uh, the flamingo. Uh, for instance, had uh, an all-night session on the Friday night and the Saturday night, so you could add two more onto the seven. Uh, so you know, nine nine gigs a week was the standard, really. You know, so we were very busy. <laughs> Everybody earned their money. Everybody earned their money. Yeah, well, you know, so I, I had a lovely time, you know. Uh, playing with all the musicians that I got to play with, you know, so I didn't think about it at the time, but, uh, you know, when you're doing seven or eight gigs a week, you know, you have to have to have a band together. So, so it, even though the musicians changed occasionally, you know, then it was, um, it was, it was plenty of work for us. Did, how did you maintain your voice? Because, I mean, you're a great singer. You're an incredibly high singer because, believe me, I've tried to cover a lot of your material <laughs> in the original keys in which you recorded it. And I'm like, there's no way that I, this guy's going to hit it. How did you maintain your voice? I mean, because you don't, we don't, you know, back then you didn't have the monitors like we do today and you're kind of just listening to the PA. And, you know, how did you, how did you, did you ever ever had any trouble like with your voice like going out or was it just, you just opened your mouth and sang. I don't know. You know, every, everywhere, everywhere we played, they all had, you know, microphones and uh, sound systems set up. I mean, it was, wasn't as bad as you might think. But um, it's really hard. So It's so, so long ago, but uh, um, it, it just seemed like an easy thing to do. It was, it was the standard. Everybody had the same, uh, 
equipment. They, you know, they, they got the same PA system, and uh, so they were at the mercy of whatever was available in in the clubs. But um, I don't I don't remember any any hardships in it. Right. Talk to me about the Marquee Club, because I always say if I had a time machine, and they say. If you had a time machine, what what gig would you go back and see, and and when? And I my answer is always John May and the Blues Breakers at the Marquee Club with Air Clapton or Peter Green. And how special was that place? Because it 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 really is indelibly linked to the founding the 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 the, the, the foundation of of London scene and the British blues, especially, you know, with, with you guys and, and, you know, even the cream and Alexis corner. I mean, like that was the place to play. Well, there were two places that were rivals, you know, but they were only a couple of streets apart from each other. And that was the Flamingo, which was more of a jazz type of thing. Georgie fame and the blue flames were the resident band there. Um, but the, the Flamingo and the Marquee were two, Opposites that, that were uh, kind of at at war with each other in a way, and I was one of the few bands that actually played both clubs on a very regular basis. So they were the the mainstay ones for me, and um, you know we got a different crowd in each one. There was a young crowd at the Marquee, and uh, and, and at the Flamingo was uh, more of the late night crowd that, that did the all nighters and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I got a good grounding, really, of um, different types of audiences. Would, uh, would you vary the set list for the younger crowd versus the all-nighter? You know, like at the Flamingo versus the Marquee? Was it a different show? Was it a different set? Well, I always have a different show every night, a different, different set list that drawn from uh, whatever we're, we're currently playing. But it's a different set list I've always made every night and I still do to this day. So, because I don't like to play the same things in the same order and everything, so uh, that's the way it always has been. Um, so I can't really remember. I mean, we we, we usually have a, a a repertoire of maybe about thirty songs, and you get through about twelve in the night or whatever. So there's, there's enough to, to to choose from, and also the improvisation thing is a very strong part of it all. Right. I, I always know a good night from a bad night. Like the show runs long, it means like everybody's feeling it. I, I tacked on an extra fifteen minutes, and this is you know same amount of songs, but it's like wow, right, fifteen minutes over just because you're feeling it. And then some nights the crowd's not there, and you're just like ah, you know, you just you just sometimes you just bail early on the solos or whatever, and it's yeah. just, it you, you know you take it as it comes, you know. Uh, you don't expect any more than uh, what you can actually drum the audience up to, but usually. Uh, in the early days, there was an always, always there was always an audience there who were, were into the music. Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis were the, uh, the the band that kicked things off, really, and uh, introduced the younger audiences, who then just dropped into the whole the whole uh, network of people who were playing the same uh, the same kind of music. You know, it very happened very suddenly. So in 1966, you go into the studio with Mike Vernon, with Eric Clapton. And what, what interests me is because, you know, Eric would leave the band, come back. Peter Green would take over, come back. And finally, you go into the studio with Mike Vernon and you record John Mayle and the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton, which to me, if you had to ask me as a fan, 
is in the top five blues records of all time. It's it's right up there with BB King live at the Regal. It's up there with the very and it the very highest level of blues records. And it also taught a lot of us kids about the blues. You were you are my host. You were my gateway to 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 Otis Rush and Freddie King. You know, I heard your version of Hideaway before I heard Freddie's. And because yeah. my father had John May on the Blues Breakers. And subsequently, I'm looking at the writing credits. Who's, you know, Freddie King? And, you know, and who's Otis Rush? And, you know, who's Robert Johnson? And was that record, were those arrangements straight off the stage into the studio? Or did you guys start fresh? And did Mike Vernon? truncate things how how involved was he in the production of the record um that is now this iconic piece of work well you know mike really had nothing to do with the the content of what we were playing he knew what knew what he wanted to listen to and he knew the the, the correct way to to capture it all on on tape so um you know mike was a a very influential guy at Decca Records and uh, he talked Decca Records into uh, into ha- having us play uh, the albums that uh, we think everybody knows about now. The, the Blues Breakers one with Eric Clapton was the first major one mm-hmm. um, that made a mark. And, um, you know, Decca had no idea what, was, what they were in for. Uh, they just knew it was selling and that was all they cared about. So you know that was the the, the beginning of the Decca thing that, uh, that that kicked the whole thing off, you know, with regard to uh, the, the recording. But uh, you know, we we had we had a, a seven or eight gigs a week that were all 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 the year round, you know, in those days. I mean, it was the usual thing. You were getting you you have one van that you won't break down, and you travelled up and down the country best as you could. Weekends usually you went a little out of London, up to further parts of out of the country. Did you know? How, first of all, I have two questions. Did how long did it take to record that record, the 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 one that we call Bino? You know, because Eric's got the the comment. How 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 many days was it? Please don't tell me it was in a couple of hours because I'll, I'll quit. I how don't remember. I don't remember exactly, but I know it was very quick. It's you know we were doing our our regular uh, evening gigs at different parts of the country. So if we were in London, uh, I think I think it probably took three days at the most, maybe less than that. You know, we'd, we'd do, the, do the recording in the daytime and then you'd brush off to your gig at night. Um, it, I just remember that it was very, very fast. Right. Mike Vernon was the one who was... Uh, spearheading the whole thing and he was the one who brought Decker into actually recording us because they had no idea what kind of music this was so they just left him to it did you know it was groundbreaking when you made it like like nobody had ever heard anything like that before that that particular take on the blues well it was it was something that we were playing in the clubs up and down the country so people uh, you know, the public were very, very familiar with it. Although the the record companies were very late in the day catching on to it, you know. But um, 
the public was there. We're up and down the country, so we had no problem getting getting it done. I mean, Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis were the founders of it all, and they they kicked the whole blues thing off and uh, took over from uh, what had been uh, popular for the last ten years, and that was uh, trad jazz. You know, so people got fed up after ten years, and so. Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis, they uh, kicked the whole thing off. So there you go. Um, It was very lucky for for me that it was something that I'd always played, and now there was a market for it, you know, so that's when I quit my day job and, and, uh, and got into the music. What were the first indicators that you had made it across the pond, meaning to the United States, that the record was selling here in America? Because it was... It, it came out here and, and people were like, check this out. Check this stuff that's coming out of the UK. I mean, it was it was groundbreaking. It taught so it taught so many people about the blues. I mean, who were the first indicators? How long did it take? I don't know. Probably probably three or four years, maybe. I don't really remember. I think that the first time that, I, that we played the States it was probably 1968. Um uh, the first one was, was you know, the, the, the Fillmore that Bill Graham had, had put together in uh, in San Francisco and in also Los Angeles and, uh, and New York, of course. So, you know, it happened very quickly, really. And, um, you know, the American public, you know, caught on to this, this kind of music and they, they were at the first for English musicians who seemed to be coming up with something new. So, like I said, it happened very quickly. When you, when, you first, when you first played America, did you have an idea in your mind that, like, your heroes like Otis Rush and, and Freddie King and, and all your blues heroes, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, did you think they were, like, filling stadiums? Did you realize that their popularity wasn't as much as, I think, the British public gave them credit for? Well, I think the the British invasion if, uh, was something that 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 took uh, America's youth by a surprise, and they they jumped right into it. And uh, I think it, I think everybody benefited from it. Uh, um, you know, people like Freddie King and BB King and uh, Otis Rush, all these people that were uh, that played just in the uh, the the. the the black orientated clubs were now playing stadiums and everything. So it happened very quickly and one, one uh, helped the other really. So it was like two different uh, interpretations of it all and it all came blended into one. So there was plenty of work for everybody. And uh, it was was a great uh, experience for me to be able to come over and and, uh, have a a great audience, you know, that was there waiting for it. Right. What was it like backing up uh, John Lee Hooker in '64? Very, very sporadic. You know, mm-hmm. he was—he uh, came over. He was the first uh, American blues artist who came over for a, a club tour, and, right. um, and and they put—they figured out who's going to back him up, and they put, oh, the blues breakers, because mm-hmm. that's got the word blues in it, and uh, it'll be something that John can relate to. So he came over. I think he was one of the first ones to come and do a club tour of, of England. And uh, we backed him up and uh, it was a lot of fun, really. He was, um, was, he just joined us in the van and we were just traveling around. 
you know, he just he was sitting in the front seat or the back seat of the van, and that was it. So it was very exciting, really, for us to be actually play with a a blues legend, even though he only played in one key. <laughs> you know, everything was everything was pretty samey, but uh, it was a good uh, good feather in our cap to be able to back him. I, I got to uh, sit in with him when I was a kid. I was like 13 years old, and I had no idea about the one key concept. And I was asking the band leader, I'm like, um, like you know, like, so where are we going to play? He's like, what do you want to play, kid? And I said, maybe we'll do a shuffle in G and a slow blues in C. <laughs> and he just looks at me and he goes, listen, everything's in E except the book is in A. Say. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It was always in the same key, so you know, uh, it was it wasn't hard really to figure what key it was going to be in. But the hard thing was um, to to follow his changes because John Lee has no concept of, of what the right where the, where the chord changes are. So if it's a twelve bar blues, it could be a, a fourteen bar blues or a, a nine one. It could be anything, you know. Very. So you had to follow, follow, listen to him very carefully. So, but we managed to to deal with it, and it was a, a great learning experience to to be on your toes. <laughs> oh yeah, what was he like as a man? You know, just riding around in the van around England. Well, he's a very shy guy. Very, very, very easy to get along with. You know, very easy to please. No, we had a wonderful time with him. He just. Uh, joined us in the van and we traveled up and down the country for a whole month, you know, the first time he came over. So it was, um, it was a great experience, really. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, you know, like one of the things, um, you know, um, that, that I, I, it's not lost on me that I was able to meet, you know, John Lee Hooker and I shook Willie Dixon's hand and I hung with BB and, and, you know, when you're a kid, you just kind of take that for granted because you're not cognizant. You just think these giants will live forever. And then you look back on your life and you go, wow, you know, I was lucky enough. You know, luckily, my dad took a picture, you know, and there was yeah. a camera, you know. But that, you know, that's a, that's an amazing, you know, it's it, it's so amazing to think of those guys now, how how they were they were poets. They yeah. were they were real game changers for everyone. Yeah, we had. I mean, we we had we were picked because we were the the most bluesy band on the scene on the London scene, and they they wanted someone who could follow you know some of the American artists. So we got to play with uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, and uh, and with uh, T Bone Walker. Um, they were just they were just. Uh, Great learning experiences, you know, where you, to 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 work with up and down the country. So there you go. There was um, it was very exciting for us. I hear Sonny Boy was quite the character. Oh, Sonny Boy was very strange, very very strange, and very unpredictable. So um, he wasn't. He, he didn't always have the best of tempers, you know. So he was very. He didn't really care for the the English blues players at all, you know. I remember he, I had my harmonica and he had his harmonica as we were traveling in the van up to one of the gigs and, and he played a, a phrase or two and I tried to copy it and he just he just said, no, you'll never make it. <laughs> so it was definitely not supportive at all, but uh, it was a great um, great experience to, to, to play with somebody like that who was one of my uh, harmonica idols. 
Oh man, he was, you know, a, a lot of those cats, you know, as flawed as they were, they got away with that behavior because they were so good. Yeah. You know, they, Chuck Berry being a, a perfect example of, of, of treating people a certain way. But then when he, when he stepped up there and, you know, sing roll over Beethoven or, you know, in the wee wee hours, you're like, Oh, all is forgiven. It's Chuck Berry, you know, and they yeah. knew they could get away with that kind of thing. You know, yeah, well, funny boy was a great character. I mean, he, he was he was always dressed immaculately in a three-piece suit, and he insisted always on wearing his bowler hat, and uh, you know so he was just quite a character, really. I mean, I'm, I, like a very cantankerous, but uh, it, you learned a lot from him, especially especially with volume and everything, keeping it keeping it pretty low, lower than we were used to. I, my favorite song from him was Fattening Frogs for Snakes. Like, That's uh, a great line, isn't it? <laughs> line. Yeah. Oh, some great, some great tunes, great titles. How important are songs in, in, in terms of the blues? Because, you know, there, you, can, you have all the great guitar solos, all the great harmonica solos in an average song, and it's still an average song with, with great musicianship. I mean, you, you were able to write and pick great songs that that you know when i look back at your catalog you're like these are great songs that you they're that you sing along with and you know and they're just like these these gigantic comfortable pillows you fall back into and enjoy i mean you know how yeah how important is the song um selection and writing process you know to you well for me it's never been a problem you know all i have to do is just think of a subject and uh and, and, and then you can make three or four verses out of that particular uh, subject or that idea and that, that, then you have a song you know so um i've never found difficulty in writing songs as long as you've got a story to tell and uh you know they're all obviously influenced by uh, people that you've heard before and people that you like so it, it's never been a big deal for me there's always been plenty of ideas. Right. Tell me about meeting Peter Green and, you know, the record you made with him, A Hard Road. You know, that version of So Many Roads changed my outlook on not only the blues, but singing. Because I did sing it in F. I used to sing it in F. Now I've got it down to E because I, but you sang it in F. And I was like, I'm going to try to sing it like John, you know, and then I was going to pop Peter's phrasing. I mean, talk to me about the importance of Peter Green, you know, just on the scene and, and how he came into your orbit. Well, Eric, Eric left, uh, Eric Clapton left the band, you know, pretty suddenly. So it dropped me in the, in the, uh, in the mud really of trying to find a replacement to somebody who was, you know, at least acceptable by the audiences that Eric had kind of garnered over the year that he was with me. So I was trying different um, guitar players that, that came along. I think there was a couple of weeks where I was using a different guitar player every night, finding the right one. And, and always available at the front row was Peter Green, who was saying, oh, well, I'm much better than him. Why are you using him? <laughs> so finally I gave in to Peter and, um, and he joined the band, but he only, it was only there for a week because Eric came back. So... So I don't think uh, Peter was very pleased about that, but uh, he dealt with it and uh, he, he relented when I offered him the job after Eric left. So 
Um, it was a, an exciting time, really, but it was very, everything was very fast. We were all doing, you know, seven or eight gigs a week. So, I mean, there's no time to, 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 to ruminate or figure out what your next move is. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, um, it, it's funny because, you know, we just lost Peter and, and I, I, I was talking to Bernie Marsden about this and I said, I'm not sure why Peter wasn't mentioned, you know, because when, when they talk about the, the great British blues guitar players, it's always Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page. And to me, there's a fourth on that mount, on the top of that mountain, and it's Peter Green. And, you know, he was just a special musician. And what what did you see in him, especially in the studio, um, when you were making a hard road that was different than Clapton? Was he more involved? Was he was he was he doing a different take on the blues or was it kind of they were all cut from the same cloth? It's such a, a long time ago, but the main thing about Peter was that that uh, when Eric left uh, to go on some harebrained idea to Greece or something, some idea he, he left in the lurch. So that was when I first used Peter. And Peter was in the band and I thought he was great, but I had promised Eric his job back if it, if right. it right. fell through. So Peter was only in the band for a week. And then Eric came back, and uh, Peter wasn't pleased about that at all. But uh, he actually relented, you know, after Eric finally left mm -hmm. uh, some months later. And um, you know, I kind of talked him back into to to, to having to having another go at it, you know. Right. So um, you know, Peter was was a, a great a great player, and he very quickly became uh, a placement in people's eyes for for Eric, who had left. Um, it's very hard thing. He, he was only in, in the band for a year, Eric was, and then Peter was only in the band for a year, and, and then Mick Taylor came along. But uh, things happened very quickly. You know, people were, were finding new uh, avenues, putting their own bands together, mm -hmm. and uh, there was plenty of work for everyone. So, I just, love the story about, I just love the story about Mick Taylor. You'd put an ad in Melody Maker saying musicians, guitarists wanted for the blues breakers. And you got a couple of calls and then there's an 18 year old kid named Mick Taylor. Now, first of all, I mean, to, to, you know, in scope of five years to work with Clapton, a young Eric Clapton, a young Peter Green before he went and formed Fleetwood Mac. And then Mick Taylor at 18, were you like looking at him going, listen, kid, Everybody comes in this band and then they leave after a year to form their other bands. Are, are you going to stick around? And then he ends up in the Rolling Stones. I mean, like, you know, you're like, you're like, these bloody guitar players are driving me crazy, you know? I don't know. It, it's funny the way it's all worked out. But, you know, I was just following my own instincts and my own taste in music, you know. So I was having a lovely time uh, playing with all those guys. Um, Mick Taylor was with me longer than the others. Uh, I think Peter was only in there for a year, and Eric was only in for the year. But um, they were great, great learning experiences, you know. But uh, you know, if one left, he had to be replaced. You know. And I, I love that record, Crusade. I absolutely love that record. I mean, the version of Oh Pretty Woman is classic to me. My time after a while, the the death of J. B. Uh, J. B. Lenore, and it, it's like. Once again, you're like you, you you've hit a bullseye, you know. And 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 what's the common denominator? And it it was you. It was you know, 
you were you're a great band leader and always have been. You know, you you just hit the mark and and people, especially guitar players, flourish in that environment when when the band leader and the arrangements and the songs are 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 really really together. And, you know, you've allowed a platform for guitarists to become icons. Yeah, one that you don't think about in those those in those sort of terms. You know, when it's actually happening. Um, you know, you hope that they won't leave, but they, you know, the, the guys you mentioned, they they were only in for a year, and then right. they were off you know, on their own. You know, so. Um, but the main thing is that you, the, the blues is the foundation of it all, and as long as you've got uh, s- some guitar player that you like who is into that kind of music, you know, then um, it, it gives everybody a lot of freedom. What brought you to California? Because you've been living in the states since the late '60s, early '70s. What um, what was what was the impetus to go? I'm I'm going to move from from London to to the to the to the great west coast of America. Well, it was no a no brainer really. I mean, the first American tour we did, we did two weeks in in the New York at the the bottom line, and then we did uh, a week at. Uh, a week at the Whiskey A Go Go in in Los Angeles, and then a couple of weekends at the Fillmore in San Francisco. So it was uh, as soon as 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 the plane touched down in LA, and I experienced the weather and the people, you know, I I just made up my mind right then that was where I was gonna live. And uh, so within a year I was fully, fully, totally integrated into the Los Angeles lifestyle, and uh, that was 1968. And, and, and you were you, um, you were living in uh, well uh, my my place is in Laurel Canyon, and mm-hmm. I love the history. And I always tell people like, well, why did you why did you settle in on, on Laurel Canyon? I said, well, we could talk about the obvious, you know, the Joni Mitchell, the Crosby, Stills and Nash. But to me, it's because one of my favorite John Mayall records is Blues from Laurel Canyon, and John John used to live in Laurel Canyon, and and it was like it was a it was a time and a place. I mean, what was it like? I mean, you were you were. You're coming from London, totally different world, and then you're in the middle of late '60s, you know, free love, hippie, you know, that West Coast, that classic Laurel Canyon, you know, congregation of, of musicians, including you know, you know, Jim Morrison and Mama Cass and you know, Stephen Stills and all that. Like, what was it like being just dropped in there and be like, oh God, what's going on? Well, it's, it was amazing, really. We played the, when we first went to America. Uh, we did two weeks at the at the bottom line in New York, and then it, it was January, so it was very very cold and bitter. But as soon as we landed in Los Angeles, it was a, a you know bright sunshine and the people. It was it was a wonderful uh, a wonderful scene. I made up right my mind right then that that was where I wanted to live, and uh, we finished up in um, in San Francisco. But you know, my mind was made up then, and I moved. I moved pretty pretty quickly to Los Angeles, been there ever since. But um, you know, it was it was exciting to me to 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 come to America and find that the people were aware of what my music was all about. And uh, so it was 1968. So it's been quite a while now. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, like I mean, like that song that. Um you, you did uh, someone's acting like a child you know it was a different it was a different sound for you you know like i mean vacation was a different sound for you off of blues from laurel canyon you know did you find it like invigorating to be surrounded by a different you know type of musicians 
with different influences? Did it did it affect your writing? Did it were you inspired by like when I, you know the world's my oyster? Here I am living in Laurel Canyon. I'm living in California, and you know it has to affect the music at that point. Well, I don't know how you know the music for me has always just been a self-expression and uh, enjoy to play with other people that uh, that I'm really into. You know so. Right. Um, as regards the albums, they're just a documentary, documentary of, of what was going on in my life. So the first uh, American one, Blues from Laurel Canyon, was uh, a story of my move to California. And uh, so two sides of that, of that LP, that was the whole story, you know. Right. Do you like recording or touring better? Pardon? Do you like recording or touring better? Do you like well, they both or- do different things, you know. So they're both equally um, important to me. Is uh, with 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 live recordings, that's just where you hope for the best. That what you do on on the on the actual touring is going to come off. But if you take the studio, um, you know, you get a chance to to shape it the way you want to shape it. You know, but they're basically the same things um, wherever you play. Uh, You want to tell people a story and to make it worthwhile for them. Is it amazing that you go into countries, you know, and I've had this happen a little bit with me. I I, I played in India one time at the Mumbai Blues Festival. And here I am from upstate New York. I've made a few records and I, I start playing this song called Slow Gin. And all these, all, all these young Indian people are singing the words back to me. It was such an emotional moment. I mean, you know, what's it like for you to know that the music that you create is global? It, it transcends cultures. It transcends languages. And, and it's the great uniter. I mean, it, it must be, like, really special to, like, play Moscow one night and then, and then Finland the other night and then, you know, Germany another night. And you're like, wow. It's the great uniter, is this music. Yeah, well, you know, the whole thing about, you know, the, the, the bookings of where you actually play, it's the, it's the promoters who, who suss out where there's going to be a, enough of an audience for you. And uh, they, they book you, and hopefully you'll do your best in different countries. But uh, language has never really been a part of it. You know, people who come to blues shows, if they're from Scandinavia or Germany or wherever, you know, they, 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 know, they know the music because they've bought the records. So right. uh, it, it's, it's an advantage that we have. And uh, I'm very happy about that, too. We don't have to learn, learn to speak the languages. Um, but, you know, we found that wherever we play, uh, we've been booked in places where the promoters uh, know there's going to be an audience for us, and uh, and it just helps spread the word all over the world. You ever find that the fans know more about the music and how it was made than you do? Because I, I get that all the time. They 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 know who the engineer was. They know who the 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 who tuned the drums, who 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 poured the coffee in the lobby. And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> How do you know all this? I have no idea. People who, who follow us, you know, they they seem to know uh, enough about the blues to, to, to know that they want to come out to to see you. And they also know how, where to find your records in the stores. So uh, it's something you have no control of. You just do your best uh, and something you believe in. And uh, hopefully there's going to be enough people out there 
who are going to, you know, come along and support you. So it's um, a very simple thing, really. You know, don't try and guess what they want, but you play what you want, and hopefully they'll uh, they'll identify with it. Um, if you had to name your all-time favorite blues musician, who would it be? Oh God, there's so many of them. You know, uh, guitars, guitars. I think Freddie King is one of the one of the great ones that comes to mind. But there are so many. Um, uh, it, depending on the instrument, there's so many different people. Um, I brought, I brought was brought up basically playing uh, boogie woogie, which uh, you know was inspired by you know people like Pete Johnson and Albert Hammonds who. Uh, with the foundations, as far as I'm concerned, of boogie woogie, um, but you know, there's, there's jazz influences, all sorts of influences in my playing, and they always have been. So, you know, I've got a pretty wide palette and uh, three instruments to play around with. You know, with the harmonica being a solo instrument and uh, the guitar being um, basically, in my case, a rhythm instrument. Right. Well, I won't come into your territory of fast lyrics. I, I love how you cut your guitars into to to the like a teardrop shape. I always I always love that about you. Like you have like you had a strat and it was always cut down and it was like something. You know, we give you the idea. I'm like I'm going to take this fender. And I'm going to I'm going to and I'm going to cut it into an well, odd shape. Well, I'm not that. I know I'm not that very good of a guitar player. So if I can. Gets gets a fancy looking guitar. It will help to disguise the fact that I'm just uh, you know getting along with it. But uh, uh, I don't know. I just like I always like cutting the guitars up and, and making them personal. And it you know it sort of took took people's eyes or uh, off the excuse me. It took the people's minds and eyes off the the actual technique of what I'm playing. We, we did a gig, you and I did a gig together in 1991, and that was the first time I saw you live. And um, you had a cut, you had a, you had a cut guitar, and I was like, that was the coolest thing ever. Look at you, look at that guitar, it's like a Fender Strat, but it's like a third of it's missing. Do you, do you cut them down yourself? Yeah. If you take the bandsaw? Yeah, because, you know, I, I figure that if, if I'm not that good of a guitar player, it will kind of deflect people's attention, you know, so uh, that's one of the things that I, Always uh, have liked to do was was decorate the guitar so that it will you know distract people from the actual technique that I'm playing. So you know uh, I, I do love the guitar to 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 be able to do that. You, know, you can cut off the body. You can do all the things that I do to them to to make them individual. What's your criteria? I mean, you've had so many guitar players in the Blues Breakers, and you know it's like it's like such a badge of honor for someone to be invited to be in the Blues Breakers. Like, I'm um, your current guitar player, and and I was like, when you you told me that Carol, uh, Carolyn Wonderland um, was playing with you, I was like, I was like, you know, that's such a great choice because she's so she's so good and been hiding in plain sight for so many years. What's your criteria? Is it style? Is it is it is it is it you know, you know, can we get along with people? And, and, you know, how do you go about selecting, you know, a guitar player, you know, which is a, which is a big torch to carry, um, you know, in the blues breakers. It's, it's a hard thing to describe really. Um, it has to be somebody who's, who's playing excites me, you know, right. Who, who, and also is keen to do the job. Um, 
Carolyn Wonderland has been with me for quite some time now and still is still with us. So, uh, you know, she always comes up with something different every night and there's always an exciting personality. And uh, I, don't, I haven't thought of any changes, you know, there's no reason to. Uh, yeah. But that's always been the, the criteria of somebody who's, who's playing as individual and who's, you know, who's playing uh, makes, makes a difference to, to what I do. Uh, so it has to enhance what you're doing. So you have to be in the same key in your mind right. to be able to do the job. Right. I got a few names that I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna just uh, I'm gonna read off, mm -hmm. and um, just give me a, a a a sentence or two about these people. John Baldry. John Baldry was a cantankerous, very very. I never really liked him because he was very snobbish and. Uh, Full of himself. I don't know. Paul <laughs> John Boyd goes back a long, long way. Graham Bond. Graham Bond was another character that was to be aware of. He was he was very um, great organ player and uh, you know fairly fairly good singer, but again another very uh, uncomfortable person to be around. You know, so that's two of them. <laughs> uh, Gary Moore. Gary Moore. I didn't really. I don't really know too much about Gary. Uh, he, he's played with me on uh, one or two of the albums, I think. But uh, I've never really, you know, had much to do with him. He's never in my band. So, uh, you know, somebody who's very talented and very individual. And he, he loved. He he. Uh, I remember um, this was about two thousand eight or two thousand nine. We were all doing a festival together, and and. And I, I, I stumbled upon Gary, who I knew just a little bit, and, and I'd met you a few times. And I'm like, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's John Mayle and Gary Moore. I, I got to go up and say hi, which I never do. I was petrified to say hello to you and, 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 and Gary. But it was like, you know, just, you know, just it'll, it's a, a memory I will treasure for the rest of my life. B.B. King. B.B. King was a, a total gentleman. Always, always great to see you. Um, I, I can't think of any any better way to describe him. He was very, a very individual player, and he never varied his style very much. But he always had a great command of appearance and with great, com, you know, camaraderie with the audience. And uh, you know, he's always a great a great friend of mine. Howling Wolf. Howling Wolf. I never met Howling Wolf. It's funny enough, he only came to England at the times when I was on the road somewhere in a different country, but uh, uh, I would have liked to have met him. He was one of the great harmonica players. I don't know about uh, his uh, character. A lot of people say he was a bit uncomfortable to be around, but I wouldn't mind that at all because he's a, one of the great singers uh, of the blues. Absolutely. And last but not least, this may be the toughest, John Mayall. Well, you have, have to listen to my records, right? there's plenty of them. <laughs> no, I love what I do, and I'm just really gratified that people will go along with what ideas that I have, you know, and I've been very fortunate in that respect. You know, I've never tried to follow uh, what other people want. Uh, just being, I've just been natural, and people uh, seem to have enjoyed the honesty of it and the excitement of it, and uh, I'm not going to interfere with that. <laughs> and just on a personal level, um, as we wrap up here, 
Um, I think it's one of the great crimes that John Mayall is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because you've done more for rock and roll and blues and the bands you've put together, the music you've made. As a, as a 43-year-old kid who never thought in a million years when I looked at the a Hard Road or the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton, ever thought I'd be asking you questions over an internet connection. I just have to say for our generation and so many generations, thank you for the music and you, you are a bona fide Hall of Famer and, and should be fast-tracked immediately into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because without John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, the music would have sounded a lot different going forward. And you, you are an icon and, and the legend of, of, of the highest order. That's well, just it's, it's a great compliment. Um, you know, I don't know what to say about that other than that I've always done exactly what I feel like doing. And fortunately, people have been uh, just gone, gone along for the ride. You know, they've just uh, been very, for, I've been very fortunate in that respect that I've always had total freedom to make the music that I wanted to make uh, without kowtowing to, to guessing what the public wants. So, um, you know, when I put the, I had a great success with the, uh, the, the guitar, bass and drums lined up, and then all of a sudden I switched to something with acoustic guitar and a flute, and, mm -hmm. you know, with the turning point band, people just followed it anyway. They, they've always had implicit trust. So uh, I at least have that um, that going for me that, that people, uh, you know, are always interested. And so I hope they will continue to do so. John, thank you for being here. It's been a supreme honor. I, I, I literally, this is a pinch me moment. And <laughs> I, I really can't thank you enough. Ladies and gentlemen, blues icon, my friend and yours, John Mayall. This has been live from Nerdville. Thank you for watching.